Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and thanks for Chris. Today on the program we'll be looking at the coup in Brazil. Some say it's not, others say it is. Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University, says it was. Previous action at Pine Gap, they're gathered there this week at Pine Gap in in Alice Springs. Activist and peace campaigner Joan Coxon, who's a former Labor parliamentarian, was there many years ago with the Women's Peace Camp and she's going to recall what it was like at that time. Report back from the Pacific Islands Forum with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And apart from a, a fairly hefty lots of rubbish in the, the Herald Sun from Mr Bolt about the, the forum, there wasn't a lot to said said in the mainstream media here. But Nick will be in to talk about everything that went on and everything that didn't go on. And propaganda ramping up against Assad in Syria, and I'll be speaking with Dr Tim Anderson from Hands Off Syria. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those weeks. A week, Jay, listener, when big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull exuded all his puffed-up modesty to lecture the world on how to treat those seeking refuge from your invasions. Advising the world to follow True Blue Wozniak's example, which is, Malcolm lectured, both principled and pragmatic. Principled in that it honours the hegemony of principle of capital and pragmatic in that it puts these unprincipled, queue-jumping, no-proper-papers, illegal boat people trying to exploit our innate humanity in their place, which happens to be their choice, their choice of idyllic Pacific holiday resorts. In fact, the word humanity kept dribbling from Malcolm's lips with almost every sentence leaving us to ponder what our refugee policy might look like if it wasn't based on, wasn't the very essence of humanity. Our great leader also told the world in the one sentence that we must have secure borders and that the world must reject protectionism. The movement of people must be restricted, the movement of capital unrestricted. There are still people influenced by evil forces like socialists, communists, long-haired greenies who believe in the heresy that the economy should serve people when we must declare on behalf of the world that people are there or not there if they happen to be illegal asylum seekers. People are there to serve capital, serve the economy, for only then can we all be better off. Sort of Malcolm's equivalent of the late rabid anti-communist B.A. Santa Maria, who would denounce evil communism for brainwashing dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus, and demand state aid for Catholic schools in the same breath without blushing. Malcolm, too, argued for securing borders from people but not from capital without blushing, but we can be sure True Blue Aussies blushed profusely, uncontrollably, when they showed vision of our delegation at the UN, of the US, of the UN of the world, and there was the conspicuous skull of our Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer. 
who also delivered the occasional lecture to the world on protecting our borders with our renowned humanity. What collective embarrassment, what must the rest of the world think we're like, we all said, with that giant mind turned loose on them. He probably thinks the word moron is some polyglot high praise said in whispers. Once on the humanitarian trail, they couldn't stop themselves. Malcolm also lectured Iran. It has a responsibility to take back the people who have fled its persecution on a voluntary or involuntary basis. Sure, if Iran heeds Malcolm's advice, they'll be queuing up, well, queue jumping up because they don't respect queues, to volunteer for the voluntary bit. True Blue Aussie's humanity knows no bounds, does it? But sadly, inhumanity still raised its ugly head, for at the very time Malcolm and Pete were boasting True Blue Aussie's Aussie adopts world's best practice in dealing with illegal boat people, the bloody UN of Human Rights Committee declared True Blue Aussie a pariah, illegal itself, unprincipled, breaking international conventions, proving what that one notion senator declared. The UNRB is nothing but a long-haired commie front. Speaking of long-haired commies, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, not Lord Rupert nor his Wapping Sin, of course, no, no, hang in. As we mentioned last week, he finally addressed the Carlton United Against Workers 65% pay cut dispute, attacking the picketers for their violence against workers who just want to go to work. We can't call them scabs, we said, because as we reported, the courts have ruled that illegal, intimidatory, and there's nothing violent or intimidatory or illegal in sending workers home with 65% less pay if they make it home following the accompanying reduction in conditions. Well, it gets worse. This week, Lord Rupert, in a fine example of investigative journalism, iterated the illegal strikers were thugs. Well, technically, they're not on strike because they've been sacked or, sorry, sadly, let go and offered their jobs back at a a bit of a discount. But the picket line must be illegal because picket lines must be illegal. It's axiomatic. And the state minister for caring employers had shown how biased she was by speaking at an illegal picket rally rather than recognising the rights of the caring employer to sadly let go and happily re-employ at a 65% plus cuts to a few crippling conditions and the whopping sin discovered more about the thug bit evil commie union bosses thugs from other evil unions had addressed the illegal picketers and encouraged them to keep protesting against the poor caring employer when Lord Rupert and therefore all of us because he speaks for all of us would expect a responsible good good union leader can't say union boss because that's pejorative, responsible union leader like, say, the shopping, the workers' union, would tell them to get back to work and accept the pay cut and the reduced conditions. Because that's what a good, responsible union does. We do it all the time. And as for the 65% wage cut, sympathy for the affected workers that just maybe they had at least a little bit of right on their side? No, no. The whopping sin couldn't see any problem with that because it pointed out the workers were still being offered an excessive wage, exorbitant wage, presumably lots more than the respectable law-abiding boardrooms incomes at News Very Limited who gasp at such employer magnanimity. 
the US of the UN of the US of the world giant bank not so Wells Fargo started life as the target for outlaws intent on robbing its stagecoaches and good to see the company has learned heaps from the robbery bit. In a touch of trouble recently for signing customers up to all sorts of services they had no idea they were being signed up to and charging them fees for services like the not signing yourself up we had to do it for you fee but the big supremo John Stump on customers said he had sadly let go hundreds of low paid $13 an hour drones who had carried out the illegal operations. Uh, why would they do that? A senator asked. Because I ordered them to do it and threatened them with being sadly let go if they didn't. Uh, then why shouldn't you resign rather than clinging on to your obscene salary? You said it, he stated the obvious. What? My obscene salary. Seriously, stop on customers explained not so Wells and he on behalf of the corporation was genuinely really, really sorry they had been sprung, but not so Wells needed him to come up with brilliantly profitable ideas, uh, such as such as signing up customers to services they have no idea we have signed them up to and hitting them with lovely, lovely exorbitant fees followed up by the late payment exorbitant fees. But, but they don't know they've been signed up. We inform them in an appropriate manner when the fees they owe us match the balance in their accounts. You've got to laugh when they front up and find they've got nothing left. Our very own worst pack supremo Brian hits customers' hearts are attacked bank critics who just don't understand how important the role of banks is. So important he likened them to the human heart circulating blood, a circulatory system that pumps money around the economy. And therefore, critics of their obscene profits must understand that makes banks different to other businesses. But when he puts it that way, we have to understand, don't we? And then having said they were different and must make as much money as possible, Brian then said, one way to think about why the GFC happened is because banks forgot why they exist and they started thinking they were like any other profit-seeking enterprise whose job is to make as much money as possible. Anything other than capitalism, we'd suggest there's a contradiction between making as much money as possible and making the mistake of thinking they can make as much money as possible. But Brian gets his obscene salary because he's so smart, so there's no contradiction, just our inability to recognise there's no contradiction. But we can never doubt the altruism that exists solely to benefit the community role of great corporations. Take BHP Billiston, bloody huge profits, which attacked this outrageous hayseed and sheepshit party proposal in Western Troublewazzi to increase the royalty mining companies pay, not because they're thinking about themselves and their obscene profits, but as usual, those who'd be hurt. The people who are going to bear the brunt of the damage are going to be Western True Blue Aussies and most particularly regional communities the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party are meant to represent. Bloody huge profits oozed sympathy. It's always the same with great corporations, pure selflessness.
So that class action in Texas at a bloody huge profits, bloody huge profitable shale fracking operation must be an aberration. Security workers needed to keep out the long-haired commie anti-fracking Luddites are taking action over being paid less than the minimum $7.25 an hour wage and being not being paid overtime. After all, they're only there because, that's the company of course, because they care about the community and the environment. Finally, speaking of workers, headline in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review this week. The future of work is in thinking jobs. And I thought, yeah, I could sit round all day thinking about work. Good afternoon. Couldn't we all? That was Mr Kevin Healy and that was his week that was... And he's got another hour of it tomorrow, which must make him put his thinking cap on because he's on air from 9 till 10 with City Limits on Wednesday mornings. Dilma Rousseff, Brazil's first female president, was impeached and immediately removed from her presidency after a mammoth vote of 61 to 20 earlier this month. Replacing her is Michael Temer, who will serve the remainder of her four-year term through to 2018. As one commentator wrote, her impeachment leaves the country to the mercy of the ultra-conservatives and its new president faces an investigation for corruption too. And then there is the question, was the impeachment a coup? And could there be a rerun of 1964 in the near or not so near future? I'm speaking with Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. And I'd like to begin briefly with the Olympic Games, Ralph, which have recently concluded. Some say a distraction, others say a circus. Nevertheless, it did have a place in the political events and the, the new president was booed at both the openings of the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. We had similar accusations as it goes with other Olympic Games, such as incomplete facilities, gigantic costs overrun, forced evictions, public health panic, raw sewerage in the water, not to mention corruption, scandals, over-construction deals. Was it really any different to other Olympic Games, in your view? I think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Clearly, all these you know giant international circuses have all these sorts of problems, cost overruns, and uh, you know nothing. It's not meant to be ready in time, and blah blah, all that sort of thing. So, I mean, in that sense, pretty much the same. But the the real issue for me is that this is only the second time ever that an Olympic Games has been held in a what we might call a developing country. Uh, I think the old world word was um, third world. Brazil, of course, is is and isn't a third world country. It's sort of both. We call them the BRIC countries, meaning um, countries that were traditionally colonies way back, then in a sense uh, underdeveloped for many years. But of course now with uh, changes in political economy, these countries, the ones we're talking about by BRICS means Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and I've stuffed South Africa in there, which is sort of to have something in Africa. But it's really Brazil, India, and China. I put the Russia, I think, too complicated in that sense. I mean, we're all aware, clearly, that these are countries that traditionally um, had massive poverty, still do. But, of course, 
there is a sort of a nucleus of industrial development and uh, a big middle class that's grown up around that. However, it's still, in a sense, the mass of the population live in terrible conditions. This is the problem. Now, the point is, Brazil was awarded the Olympics in 2009 when it was actually having quite a boom. And that's one thing, you know, when you're in a country that can have these sorts of fluctuations and has, in a sense, it's not a uh, totally developed country that uh, might be great in 2009, but by the time it came round to now. But deeper reasons are that, in course, spending this much money on what really is a big circus uh, certainly gets lots of prestige, although it can backfire, which I think it has to some extent in Brazil. When you have a country that has desperate social needs, the spending of money on something like this really looks... I mean, I think in, in London you couldn't really see that. But here you can. And sadly, the only other case I, I know of of Olympic Games in a developing country is, of course, Mexico in 1968. And if you remember, about two weeks before that Olympics, 300 students were shot dead in the street protesting. This hasn't happened in Rio, but this, I mean, the political situation is extraordinary. So, yes and no. <laughs> Was there a worry that something like that could go wrong? I mean, not to the extent of 300 people dying, but... Oh, well, I think so. Two years ago, and again, it's rare for a country to have a World Cup with Olympic Games, although Mexico also had that in the World Cup in um, 1970. Uh, many first world type countries have had them. I mean, I think uh, Germany, etc. I think maybe have had Olympics followed by um, World Cups and Olympics. But the difference is here in Brazil, I suppose the point being is that there were mass protests during the World Cup. In some funny way, and I know this sounds from a Brazilianist saying, I'm sort of glad we didn't win the World Cup because it would have glossed over the mass expenditure, the building of stadia that actually white elephants, this massive stadium built in Manaus in, um, up the Amazon, which, you know, the local team is just a, you know, a third division or something. So in other words, an expenditure that has no ongoing community infrastructural use. I mean, I feared, yes, there would be... Well, there were protests, but I think that clearly no one wanted another Mexico city. Tataloco was the name of this uh, square in Mexico where they shot all the students in 68, in that sense. But the, the story is not finished. <laughs> There's a Paralympic. I think what will be interesting is how it pans out after that. Focusing more on the political games and the demise of Rousseff, what was the genesis? Well, the genesis, <laughs> being a historian, of course, for me, the genesis goes back 500 years. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It really does. The point basically is she was impeached for corruption, alleged corruption. But the problem with this is, is that it's really just a political game because the whole of the political class are corrupt. We're going to see this. I mean, it's going to play out incredibly. Guado Cunha, the Speaker of the House, we'd call him, the Speaker of the um, the Congress, the lower house, was indicted and had to stand down. The guy that took over from, I call her Dilma, that's Brazilian, Dilma, Dilma, Hussef, who of course is from Bulgarian descent, which is rather interesting, but Brazilian, uh, was that she was only playing the game, <laughs> the game that everyone plays. And this is the point. Why I say 500 years is this, is that with the colonial, the conquest of Brazil by the Portuguese, starting in 1500, exactly, they implemented a political economy in this conquered region of 
plantation. In other words, massive amounts of land were allocated to one man, usually, these captaincies as they were called, turned into states vaguely later. But you very early on got massive control of territory by a few people who become, of course, an oligarchy, who, of course, control work by not meritocracy, but you get somewhere by schmoozing up to the big man... Caldillos, we call them. And, of course, this, this becomes the norm. You, you get somewhere by favours and kickbacks and you have a patronage systems, oligarchies. Corruption becomes the way. And it's not actually seen as wrong. It's the norm. So, in other words, this stems back when you have massive amounts of land controlled by few people. So many other things flow on from that, but uh, in the sense of the distorted economies, sugar. I mean, Brazil's the story of boom and bust in sugar and then gold. Then they had coffee, of course. Now, of course, they're trying to industrial. They have industrialised, but, but still they've got the other agribusiness and, of course, this leads on to the Amazon. But the, I suppose just on the political level, the key thing about Gilma is that she is the protégé of Lula, Ignacio de Lula Silva, who was the first ever elected in 2002 working-class president. I mean, before that, it was always, well, there were different, you know, competing musical chairs to some extent, certainly up to 1930, but the guy that took over that I worked on a, a lot, uh, Getulio Vargas, tried to centralise the country, but he was still of the elite. In many ways, he did change the industrial workers and industrialised Brazil from 1930 onwards and, in fact, brought the urban working class into a sort of populist coalition. No power, just in the coalition to get their support. Gave them goodies. I mean, this is a classic populist thing, um, eight-hour days and minimum wages. I mean, this was he wanted to industrialise, so he needed the support of what would become the workers. Never touch the countryside. You know, that's still that very firm old oligarchic control of the um, outside the cities. But the point is here how you do things. And it's in Brazil we call it a jetu. The jetu is a word meaning, I won't say corruption, it means the way you sort of get things done. And it's, it's not the way we see it. <laughs> but this is not their fault as such. It's, an, it's a, a long distorted political development and uh, economic development. Why did they then wait for her? Why didn't they get rid of Lula earlier? Right. Well, the problem with Lula was he was actually quite popular. The problem was by the time Lula was elected in 2002, the, if you like, the political, conservative political class had been utterly discredited. Tried everything. One time they, they tried a, a president who um, was also impeached, actually, who was only chosen on his looks because they needed Lula as a rather sort of rough-looking little guy, you know. And I remember they in one election, because he stood four times before he won, they looked around the state governors and the one, they chose the one that looked like a movie star. <laughs> His name was uh, Fernando, uh, was a Cologium Malu. And of course he lasted about a year or two, but you know, he was giving his brother kickbacks. <laughs> it was a shocker. So basically, I think even the, if you like, the middle class were, were just sick of the, the sorts of parties representing them. And they thought, let's give this bloke a go, more or less. What he did, and I think very sadly for the left, he split the left by, well, it's that old story, not being radical enough. I think, you know, if we want to go back and talk about Allende, who thought he could actually have a revolution, uh, well, you know, an elitist democratic uh, model. 
Lula did bring in changes. I mean, in some ways, he redressed some of the distribution of wealth in the country towards the poor. But, you know, this is a momentous job and a job that can't really be done with the sort of current structures as such. So many of the the left splintered because they felt, you know, he was selling out to neoliberalism, few token gestures, you know, they did have you know, an increased welfare to some extent. Well, boy, they needed it. The problem with, see, he could only have two terms. And so he did have his two terms, although, you know, there was tensions more on the left, actually, in a way, because he was he was sort of doing a good job for the the, the right, <laughs> you know, the, the neoliberal people. I have to criticise him because, I mean, in a sense, the left splintered. What is amazing about today, by the way, is that the left have come back into a, a block behind Gilma. Gilma took over from him because he couldn't stand again after two terms. He can come back again whether he will. I think he's just been indicted, actually. The problem is that she, not as charismatic, I mean, the first woman, and that in itself is a wonderful thing for Brazil, but of course she didn't last, a bit like Julia. (laughs) Sound familiar? But the point was that she lacked his charisma, arguably left herself open to corruption charges only because that's... Everyone does it. I mean, I think you'll see that the current president, the bloke that's taken over, Michelle Tamar, is far more corrupt than she ever was. And I think in a way, this is the game, you know, pot calling the kettle black. But I suppose for us, you know, it's, you know, the lefties, you sort of expect a higher standard of morality, I think, and ethical. But the problem is you can't get anything done if you don't do that. This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. And I'm speaking with Dr. Ralph Newmark, who's the director of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. Does it rest on the term corruption? Because it was an accounting fudge, wasn't it? Yeah, but I suppose the point is, no, I mean, corruption, what do you want? You want to call it jeito, corruption? I mean, my, my point simply is, is that the system works like that. I mean, I mean, we could get forensic detail in terms of accounts and that. I mean, I think it's probably one of the most honest governments they've had. You know, everything's relative here. But the trouble is, the way politics works is that you will look for the Achilles heel. So, in a way, probably under her reign, certainly things have happened. But, you know, it's and they pay the money was paid to minority parties to help support them in parliament, but this is part of it. As I said, I, I mean we could go into the forensics, but the point is that clearly there are irregularities. My point is they've got to clean the whole of the political class out. I really think Brazil needs a fairly big change because this is, as I said, goes back five hundred years. Well, who's going to do that? <laughs> well, one thing that's really annoyed me is that some people said, well, if it's not a coup, because I, 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 I'm calling it a coup, I'm, I'm sorry. But then I heard people call it the soft coup. You know, what's a soft coup? Oh, right, that's one where you know no one yet has been killed. Well, I don't want anyone killed, clearly. The point is that under the Brazilian system, I remember I heard someone ring up talkback radio claiming, um, how could it be a coup if it was, you know... Uh, a balance in the parliament, voted her out. Well, that might happen here. I mean, we change leaders every 18 months, I think, don't we? Uh, Palace coup in Canberra. But the point, it's a different system. They don't have a parliamentary system as such. The president is elected directly by the people. See, we don't have that. 
we have we elect a party who's uh, head of that party, and that can change any day. I mean, Mr. Abbott felt that, and Julia. But the point is, in Brazil, she does actually have a direct personal mandate from the people. She won the election <laughs> under their system. So the point is, this is a coup, particularly as this system operates, is that the vice president, and this has always been the case in Brazil, you don't get that in, say, US, the vice president is quite often from another party. This has actually happened quite a number of times. And so actually, it's a dramatic change. But the president's directly elected, she was rolled, so it's a coup. One commentator, he maintained, or he argued that it was to do with the oil off the coast and that she was going to put that money from the oil into social issues and the, the powers that be on the other side didn't like that. Is that... Well, I think it's a, it's a contributing factor. I mean, clearly what I'm, I, I suppose I'm saying is that it's really marginal, but the, you know, clearly the Workers' Party, the PT, which she's part of, have you know, a, a greater emphasis on social issues, but they're not, as I said, they're not looking at turning the whole place into what might be a, you know, a socialism, no way. The oil is important, I think. You've got to go back to 1954, when the person I work, do my work on, Getulio Vargas, was president. He, in 1954, created Petrobras, which is the state oil monopoly. Now, there was a lot of toing and froing. This was right in the Cold War period. Um, economic nationalism but it was seen as very bad in the uh, US. Clearly... It was a major... There's no oil in Brazil at this point. It was a really interesting issue because oil, you know, being the basic energy source in the 20th century, hopefully not long, much longer, was the idea that this was about Brazil's nationality, about Brazil controlling its own resources. So there's a Petrobras has a very special place. Now, oil has been discovered. So suddenly, I think the old thing was, how could God give us such a big country and no oil? It's got to be, he's got to find it. And they did find it, but it was offshore. The point about that is the revenues and what is the future of Petrobras. I think no one would be have dared to nationalise it completely in any sense. But there's going to be some big money coming out of that development and there's a consortium with the government, with some of the oil companies. I think it's just one of the jigsaw, to be honest. I don't think it's just that. My, my point would be there's deeper, longer-term issues and also just the political game. You know, sometimes you'll think like footy and uh, it can get that petty. In other words, there's not going to be policy changes. I mean, Tamar, if anything, is more tainted by corruption. He's... A neoliberal, it's a matter of emphasis. But I don't think Dilma was clearly going anywhere nor where taking Brazil to socialism. No, not in my view, no way. Talk about the role of the media, an important one? Yeah, always. And, I mean, you can't ignore media because the problem in Brazil, like here, is that it's you know, a couple of large uh, networks, Globo, one of the, the big ones, controlled by small rich families, mainly in um, Sao Paulo and these places, but you know, mainly the centres. My, my point is that perceptions are, are very big. and I mean, you can have a campaign. Well, look at Julia. I mean, I, you know, just the parallels are extraordinary in many ways, although the system's a bit different there. But if you have a concerted effort by, you know, it just takes one newspaper, well, network, not just papers, network, TV, then it'll work eventually. The radical move to the right... He's been in power for how long now? Tamer. Well, I mean, de facto, of course, he was caretaker for a 
few weeks. It's not more, much more than a month. Yeah. Has he done anything yet to reverse the, the work of Gilmer? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not... I mean, the point, he's only actually just... I mean, it's literally days, weeks, because the point was she was... He was an interim president or acting until she was officially impeached by the Senate, which actually only happened, I think, the day after the, the Olympics happened. Clearly, he's going to follow a more neoliberal. I mean, I'm not. I, I don't see it actually as too dramatic a change because I, you know, some of us on the left would have seen the whole Lula Dilma regime as pretty much par for the course. Clearly, around the edges, social justice issues were more vocalised, were more. I mean, it's a matter of emphasis. But the problem with the World Cup and the Olympics coming in then was that, in fact, people could see so much money being spent on, well, what didn't look like ongoing infrastructural, social infrastructure, which could could last. The other problem is the cleaning out of the favelas. Now, the real estate implications here, this all happened under her and, and Lula, but the problem is... I see this as continuity rather than change, but I mean, my point is, I'd rather I think Brazil would, would rather have a centre left than a centre right. A little bit better. <laughs> and where did they borrow the money from for these games? Well, I think, on the sense, much of it, and I, uh, would be on the international market. I mean, I think that there clearly is a major recession. This is part of the problem. As I said, you get nominated for an Olympic Games when you look good. You're a, you know, fifth largest economy in the world. Brazil looked incredible in 2009. I think like the rest of the world, we all live on the coattails of China. Clearly that's felt here now. I mean, the GFC didn't, wasn't, uh, for those countries, intimately locked into selling to China, which wasn't as bad as it was in some other places. The most worrying is that Brazil's industrialization, which still is there, they make aircraft and you know, motor cars. I mean, it's a properly industrialised economy in part, but they've moved very much to selling to agri-produce and mining iron ore. In other words, China, when it was just eating iron ore, um, you know, every day, and and also soybean. This is, of course, the great worry because really there's a bigger issue here than Olympic Games and kicking soccer balls. It's the future of the planet. I mean, I've said this before that. Brazil for, well, it's whether it's coincidence or whatever, is the custodian of the largest rainforest in the world. Brazil wants and deserves to be a developed country for all its people. Part of the problem is that this development has been creating super rich people. No, some has, they say, trickled down to an extent. But really, the distribution of wealth is outrageous, as it, uh, as it always has been. It's changed. It's been modified. They, they talk about, you know, people have moved up into the middle class and this has been wonderful. But, you know, my point is the extent of that could be challenged and how do you measure it exactly. But clearly, Brazil, of its 200 million people, there are large amounts who live in still very bad poverty in terms of education. How do you measure it? Well, you measure it. You've got clean water. Do you live in a decent house? Have you got sewage? You know, do your kids go to school? Can you get a job that's decently paid? Well, a lot of people know that's still not the case. So the point is they deserve to basically develop. But the problem is this. As we and other countries exploit their hinterland and their um, their territory, and you'd say under a sort of sovereign state you can do that, but Brazil's different because it is the custodian of something that keeps us all alive. 
this is quite a challenge, and I think that the, it's not Brazil's problem, it's our problem. Are they nibbling away at the edges of the Amazon, or are they, or are they actually going into the Amazon and destroying parts of oh, it? Oh, well, no, no. They're, I mean, it starts on the outer and eats its way in, so to speak. I mean, there have been attempts to try and s- slow it. I mean, the worst one of recent years, clearly, is um, is hydroelectricity. See, th- th- there's a really interesting issue here. You'd say, well, hydro, that's re- renewable, it's clean, you know, where's the, uh, the burning? The problem is they're flooding the Shingu River right up in the north part of the Amazon. And, you know, there was indigenous land there. There were other issues, too, about uh, indigenous rights. Flooding vast amount of the Amazon to produce electricity for the south, you know, with the industrial areas. I mean, this causes methane. You're uh, killing animals. You're taking away um, biodensity, uh, biological uh, diversity. So that and soybeans, there are attempts to maybe try and get soybean out of the area. But logging, mining, illegal logging, and this is another thing, you know, how when you have corruption, you don't always get things policed properly. I mean, I've been accused of, you know, this is pie in the sky stuff, but my view is, and it's not an easy thing because it means we as people all around the world need to take responsibility and, in a sense, compensate Brazil for not cutting it down. So the earnings they would have from you know, soy, you know, putting in soybeans, logging, etc., somehow we pay a tariff. I mean, I always ask my students, would you, like to, would you pay a dollar on everything you buy, a bit of milk, you know, milk or whatever you buy, bread? If you knew it was honestly going, and that's the problem. Honestly. Because... That's the pro- and the point is when you have endemic corruption, which is historical, it's not personality or genetic; it's historical. Can you trust that dollar's going to go there? <laughs> right. I mean, we could buy pockets of it. Some, I think, Scandinavian groups are doing this, but it's got to be done on a bigger level. And also, with a country that is so huge, does mm. the central government have control over all those areas? Well, I, I don't think directly. No. I mean, the central government, uh, part of the idea of building Brasilia, this was this capital, a bit like us. When you've got two cities that see themselves as, you know, the most important cities in the country, in Australia, clearly, it was Melbourne, Sydney. Melbourne was the capital, you know, after Federation, but it was always going to be another. So they built it, you know, cow paddock and <laughs> halfway. So what they did, but in Brazil, of course, Sao Paulo and Rio, and Rio de Janeiro, they built it sort of halfway but out miles into the uh, into the interior and that was done in a sense because you know it formed an arrow into the interior because you know, this was the future back in 55 and uh, Juscelino Kubitschek they called it uh, desenvolvimentismo which means developmentism and the future of Brazil was the interior which of course if you keep going far enough it's Amazon <laughs> uh, this of course is, is, is the problem I mean again we've got to rethink everything here and Brazil, in a way, is a symbolic of that, it seems to me. And it's going to become more... Well, it's, more, it's important now. Talk about your interest in the Amazon regarding plants and oh, yes. areas that haven't been discovered yet. I mean, I think someone's estimated... I mean, it's hard to be... But you know, something like 30% of the diversity of life on Earth is within... I mean, this is an amazing... Um, well, it's a macrocosm, isn't it? It's not really micro... The point is we can exploit it, to use a word, without ruining it. And I think 
areas like, and we talk about you know, pharmaceuticals, the, the diversity of plants there is amazing. There are products already which are natural products coming out of Amazonia. For example, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know how many people, listeners, drink those power drinks. What are they called? Like, um, Red Bull or something? Yeah, Red Bull, right. They're loaded with guarana. Now, guarana is the a, a berry or a plant or a, a, a berry that has the highest concentration of caffeine per gram. And so what actually, you know, they're loaded, like drinking 50 cups of coffee, coffee or something in one hit. It's not quite that, but it's pretty strong. You know, my point would be with people want that, you don't have to pull down the Amazon to exploit it. I mean, we can get, uh, get out of it. The other one is acai berries. I don't know. Uh, these are antioxidants, apparently, whether that's true or not, but uh, they're getting quite popular. Again, as long as this isn't turned into plantation economies. But my, my point is that it, there is a sustainable economic benefit. I think probably the biggest payoff would be the use of plants in terms of pharmaceuticals. And so, you know, this could be like a, a, a hothouse where you find a pharmaceutical. You don't have to sort of pull down the forest and make a plantation, but you can sort of ultimately turn it into something that maybe is grown elsewhere. But, you know, if you leave it intact, it's the diversity is just extraordinary and can be sustainably used. There has to be the will. I mean, I, sadly, I often think it might take a catastrophe for people to really realise. See, people, they just don't do things until they have to. And there's even, you know, climate change deniers. The impact of the dam bursting, BHP oh, Billiton Dam... What's the consequences of that for well, Brazil? again, pause to think. This was a mining uh, in the great state of Minas Gerais, which, of course, was the site of the great Brazilian gold rush in the 1600s. It was a long time ago, but it ran out. But, of course, this area is known for its mining, manganese, uh, iron ore. And, of course, this was a BHP, which gives us some culpability, too, um, in terms of maintenance of this dam site and a mining site. Look, it's a complete and utter disaster for the people who live down the river and that sort of section of the state. It's almost going back to that sort of, you know, gung-ho mining days of nothing matters but extracting the wealth and dig it up and run, and run away. Again, the point is Brazil's sort of being, you know, distracted by all this. Clearly, the compensation, I think, I'm not quite sure of the state of the um, court case, but, boy, they're going to have to pay it's destroyed the lives of, um, you know, the, the, of all the people down the river right into the Atlantic Ocean. It destroyed the whole environment and that won't recover. Utterly, utterly. And I think, you know, again, mining, and as Australians, we should have... Um, <laughs> we, well, the point is our mining often is not surrounded by high populations. This is part of the problem. Although, look what happened in um, the Latrobe Valley in the brown coal quarter. I mean, mining is a dangerous to be thought through. I mean, quick profits are there, but my point is the damage, and I think it's up to the government, I think, to, to really police these. And again, when you have governments that things can be bent a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll look, you don't have to put as much concrete in that dam, or I mean, I don't know the exact details, but the trouble is it's got a lot to do with governance as well. And that, again, goes back to my initial issue of cultures that don't, and I'm not saying ours is a hell of a lot better, but it is, it is better in terms of corruption is not endemic. Yeah, I'm sure this here, but it's not as, no, it's actually, that's how you do it. 
whereas we might resort to that if nothing else works. Getting to the end, Ralph, the future for the former president. Yeah, now this is really interesting. I mean, I suppose, you know, from where I sit is that one interesting byproduct of this, as much as, you know, it's it's terrible to watch, is that it's brought a splintered left together. I mean, these mar- I don't know if you've seen the photos, but there's sort of colour schemes. The red shirts are this sort of basically a coalition of the left that have come rallied because they were fighting each other as much as they were fighting the other side. The people who marched down with the Brazilian soccer shirt, the, 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 the green and the golds, they're in a sense the right supporting. They wanted her out. So you really have a polarised situation here. And as I said, one thing is that and the left, of course, as we all know, uh, love debating themselves. I'd often get so heated in their debates about various things that they are not looking when the right take over and actually run the joint. I think it will, and I hope, I suppose long term, the Workers' Party, the PT, which Lula founded way back in the 80s, 1980s, was in a sense seen as a great hope for a Brazil that would really embrace some level of social justice and, in fact, maybe to the point where it was fair for most people. Not necessarily direct socialism, but certainly a social justice redistribution of wealth. This did not happen. And this is why the left splintered. As I said, now that he's been nailed, and certainly, you know, his protégé, their party... I think it's a time for rethinking of the left and maybe next time round, I think Lula may not be, uh, it'd be interesting, he might be in jail, he may not stand. But if, he, if they do come back, and they can come back unless the worst of the worst happens and I don't even want to think about it. I just don't think these days the military will come out again. Let's hope never, after like 64. But I think actually it could be seen as a rebirth of the left. I mean, that's sounding incredibly optimistic, but every time I see that illegitimate president there. And I think that will keep the the fires burning. Until he's charged with corruption. Yes, and I think this has to happen. So he can't be allowed to serve out that full term, because it's her term, by the way. (laughs) I really think fresh elections, clearly, but look, you know, that's not really the solution. These are very deep, and I think everything we've talked about in the last time here today is such a big issue. And, but you know, I I suppose my interest is, is that Brazil personifies this myriad of issues in terms of social justice, the environment and everything. And I suppose that's why I love the place so much. But I do, I'm very saddened by what's happened. And the impact for other centre-left parties Mm. in South America and perhaps Latin America. Well, we've talked this whole issue of rolling back the so-called pink tide. I mean, clearly the elections in Argentina with the centre-right, the end of um, Cristina. Uh, I think the biggest and most symbolic fight is clearly in Venezuela. I mean, the, the legacy of Chavez and uh, Maduro. I think, in a sense, the forces of the right are obviously concentrating their effort in Venezuela because, in a way, that was really seen as a major vanguard of this pink tide. Can that flow into Ecuador? Uh, one, I think, is a shining example that keeps going on is, is um, Evo Morales in Bolivia. Now, here's a, an indigenous fellow who clearly has brought in a social justice agenda, but look, the pressures... And I think, you know, it's not just the US, but the US is always there. I mean, I, I think the argument that they're distracted in uh, Afghanistan or Middle East or something is uh, certainly... Th- I think they don't need to be directly involved because they have people of the similar persuasions in the elites in every country and this will all be fought out. 
I mean, people would say, well, what if Donald gets in, you know? <laughs> going to happen. I mean, we, that's really spreading it out. But I don't think he's going to be any different. And in fact, meaning that um, there's lots of posturing, but the US always has its interests. What about Cuba? This is, of course, for many of us, the key issue. I th- I'm very worried about Cuba, personally. I think that having been there a number of times and seeing the pride in the Cuban revolution, of course, set back by, you know, world that's really against them and the biggest country uh, in the world against them next door. Clearly, the economic issues have to be addressed. I think uh, clearly if it goes back to open slather, and I mean, tourism's a very worrying thing. I just hope, and I think the key is that, say, maybe countries that you know, are friendly, allied with, um, with Cuba, that we look at economic, I think you've got to need a diverse economy. You can't live on tourism monoculture. You can't live on sugar monoculture. They've tried to do this, but it's, an, it's an ongoing. The one thing I think for Cuba is the pride of their achievement, and I just hope that carries them through. I think, in fact, they don't need to invade Cuba because if, if things go along as they are, they're changing it. <laughs> I just think they need a rethink and a younger generation. I think it might be time for the boys to retire. We hope so. That's Dr Ralph Newmark from the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. And you can hear Ralph every third Sunday on the Latin American Update program at 10.30 on Sunday morning where he mixes his knowledge of Latin America with the music of Latin America. It's a wonderful program. And just another thing is that the 40th anniversary of the Institute of Latin American Studies, the Institute, same as CR, 40th anniversary, and they're having their big celebrations in early December. So I hope to have Ralph back on the program early November to talk about the history, how it all began, what's been happening over those 40 years, what his part in that has been, as well as much, much more. So that's something in the next few weeks. You're listening to 3CR. On Sunday, the 9th of October, 3CR opens its doors to the community and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll be an awesome afternoon tea, roving musicians, special on-air broadcasts, and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic. There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours, and the chance to purchase, for the first time, 3CR 40th birthday T-shirt. Come in and enjoy your community radio station. 3CR Open Day, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Sunday the 9th of October, 12 to 4pm. See you all there. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. This week, activists have converged on Alice Springs to protest against the US-Australia spy base at Pine Gap, which has been there for the past 50 years. Activist and former politician Joan Coxidge has been there before and she spoke recently at the Unitarian Church. And this is a slightly edited version of the talk she gave that day. 
Pine Gap is the most important US electronic surveillance station outside their territory. Its lease comes up for renewal on December the 9th. The US has considered shifting Pine Gap to Guam at a cost of $1,000 million because Australia is now considered unstable. On the other side, underneath a photo of mass troops, it showed a map of Australia, pinpointing Pine Gap. Six months before the formal US-Australian agreement for the National Security Agency base, and it's sort of a bit of a mix here, and I'd be interested in what Richard says, but it's a sort of a... NSA is even more secretive, vastly more important than the CIA, and people don't know a great deal about it. But before it was signed, the agreement, construction crews began laying a new road southwest of Alice Springs, miles past the water bores where locals had long wanted a road, And apparently this new road was leading to nowhere, but we know where it was going. So the Pine Gap Treaty was eventually signed on December 9, 1966, by Minister Hasluck and US Embassy official Kronk as part of Menzies' defence pact with the United States. It stated that after an initial nine years, either party could terminate the agreement on one year's notice. And in January 1967, the NSA, CIA, whatever he was, he was a top spook, Richard Stallings, flew into Alice Springs to supervise its construction. I'm not really sure what Whitlam would have done, although he was certainly questioning the way Pine Gap was being run. And on December the 9th, he would have been empowered to act, but he didn't get the chance. Parliament returned on November the 11th when Whitlam was sacked by Governor-General Kerr. Many years later, I learned that on November the 10th, ASIO Chief Frank Marnie received an extraordinary message from his Washington office stating that the CIA considered Prime Minister Whitlam was a security risk. Prime Minister of a country, because he dared to ask questions, was considered a security risk. Anyone, December the 9th, Whitlam would have been empowered to act, but he didn't get the chance. In October 1977, the agreement was formally renewed by Malcolm Fraser for a further nine years. So over time we learned about Australia's other spooking outfits and the existence of secret treaties and other secret bases, many of them not known to the Prime Ministers of the day. One of the most important was the UCUSA Treaty, UK-USA Treaty, now called Five Eyes with US at the top of the pyramid, followed by the UK and third parties, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. And over the years, we learned a great deal more about the workings of Pine Gap as a highly sophisticated electronic monitoring system which processes satellite information with one of the largest computers in the world. Only a handful of carefully selected top bureaucrats were in on the one-sided arrangement and how it locked us into Washington's war games, giving us permanent underclass status in whatever they decided to do, except we're not alone. Pax Americana is a global problem of monstrous proportions. I first saw Pine Gap at close range in the mid-1970s when I travelled to the Northern Territory as a Victorian member of the ALP's National Aboriginal Affairs Policy Committee. We use Darwin as a central point to meet traditional owners and visit various out-of-the-way settlements, and I decided to go home via Alice Springs to talk with Central Lands Council people and some Aboriginal artists and to suss out Pine Gap on the side. 
The Alice, named after the wife of a former superintendent of telegraphs, sits in the centre of a vast area of desert and dry riverbeds, smack in the centre of Australia, with Pine Gap Valley nestling 19 kilometres to the southwest in the rocky foothills of the Macdonald Ranges, providing a perfect setting for one of the world's most secretive bases. The idea that Pine Gap is a joint operation is strictly for the birds. Australians are limited to menial jobs and are not represented at top-secret levels because certain projects were deliberately designed to keep the Australian government ignorant of what they were doing. As Christopher Boyce pointed out, he worked as a cipher clerk, some of you may remember, in the code room at a Californian aerospace company where top-secret messages were deciphered from US bases, including Pine Gap. We got very angry about it all and he blabbed about it, about the double dealing to the Australian government and he ended up in jail on a very, very long sentence. Anyway, to get to Pine Gap, the locals were full of suggestions. Don't go down the highway towards Temple Bar Creek past the Marini water bores, they said, because although the unmarked roads lead straight to Pine Gap's front gate, there's nothing to see except guards, a high wire fence and an internal road. Go round the back where you can see the radomes, but talk with someone who knows the way. By sheer good luck, I met Phil Nitschke, who later became a doctor embroiled in euthanasia, but back then he was a field officer with the Northern Territories Parks and Wildlife Service, and he knew the area like the back of his hand. We set off in his four-wheel drive early one morning to beat the burning sun, clambering in and out of his vehicle, opening and shutting gates through large cattle stations, till we eventually pulled up at a steep embankment. We climbed a rocky rise and there it was, like a huge moon colony that had fallen from the sky and transformed this ancient land into a futuristic spy base for aliens. Eighteen ugly single-storey concrete buildings and six... Silver-white radomes, and they all have a lot more now, but back then six of them glimmered in the sun with each radome containing the dish antennae. Intruders, definitely not welcome. Perched precariously on a tuft of grass, I made a quick sketch. Sure enough, within a couple of minutes, a patrol car drove up and took our photographs. Every week, a huge US supply plane, a star lifter, flew in late at night with provisions for the invaders. On one memorable occasion, the C-80 Galaxy, then the world's biggest aircraft, brought in a replacement radome weighing a massive 500 tonnes and the tarmac gave way so the wheels got bogged. Alice Springs school kids got a holiday in honour of the occasion. And then during Easter 1981, I was invited to the Alice by a local peace group to give a paper on US bases as part of a broader discussion about our role in Washington's grand scheme. I called my contribution The Real Terrorists, Global Terror by Agents of the Establishment and was surprised when two federal plods turned up to keep an eye on proceedings. The conference wasn't exactly a high-flown affair in a major city. The pair stood conspicuously by the door, telling organisers they'd come to hear what Coxedge had to say, so I obliged them. And this was when terrorism was hitting its straps as a replacement for the communist bogey. In the closing session, conference adopted a statement of concern, similar to ones passed ad infinitum at Victorian Labour Party conferences and invariably ignored by those at the top of the food chain. We marched up to Pine Gap's main gate where I presented the statement to a senior member of the Federal Police addressed to Richard Kreuger, CIA head of base at that time. 
Thanks to my earlier visit, I knew where to go and guided the trekkers through scrub and over rocky ridges to the best vantage point to launch our farewell message, a long banner attached to coloured balloons full of helium. Up it went, drifting slowly across the base and for a few brief moments hung in the air directly over the radome. Miraculously, the banner straightened up in its simple one-word message, peace, stood out against the bright blue sky, and I don't think I was the only one who felt a little weepy. And then at the beginning of 1983, Women for Survival groups sprang up around Australia to mobilise support for a peace camp at Pine Gap, part of a huge global women's protest movement against militarism like Greenham Common in the United Kingdom, and I was invited to take part. The starting date was November the 11th for good historical reasons. On that date, Ned Kelly was hanged in 1880, the armistice was signed in 1918, and 57 years later, Whitlam was sacked, a crucial issue being the Pine Gap Police, as I mentioned, and that formed the backdrop of our protest. Hundreds of women of all ages, shapes and sizes converged on Alice Springs. They flew in, bussed in, came by car, and I managed to link up with some of the travel-weary in the dirt, dust and flies of Roe Creek, a crusty dry riverbed halfway between the town and the base, and spent a pleasant night under the stars next to a giant red river gum. At first light, we packed up our swags and boxes of food and moved to a narrow strip of land between the sealed road and a newly erected, very unfriendly barbed wire fence encircling a pastoral property. Inside the base, the security state was gearing up with caravans, a generator, a bush dunny and a special task force from Darwin to patrol the grounds. Despite their presence, our encampment was full of colour and energy and looked more like an Asian bazaar than a haven of dissent. Organised into affinity groups, we did the usual chores that come with camping. On November the 11th, with burly black activist Mum Shirl from Redfern and 30 Pijanjara women in the lead, a great array of women holding banners and flags marched and sang down the hot, silent desert road. Come on, Bob, you've got the job. Now what are you going to do? What do you gain with your power and fame if you blow us all in two? Bob Hawke, of course. At 11am we paused for the mandatory silence and someone read out a cautiously worded telex from 12 female MPs, a message cleared in advance by Prime Minister Hawke which sent a somewhat different message. The sun burned through the tent as we sat in large concentric circles in the red dust for our workshops. I gave a workshop on Pine Gap and an overview of secret agencies. Apart from rampaging mozzies, we faced other nocturnal pests. A low-flying helicopter regularly buzzed the camp while beaming a powerful searchlight into our tents and occasionally unleashing a blaring siren to drown out our street theatre and poetry reading. On day three, we breached the perimeter fence in honour of Karen Silkwood. Karen was an American technician at the Kerr-McGee nuclear power station killed in a mysterious car crash in November 1974. After claiming the plant was unsafe, Karen believed she had been deliberately contaminated with plutonium. She was on her way to meet a New York Times journalist when her car ran off a straight stretch of road in clear weather. A group dressed in black formed a human pyramid and acted out a climbing over fences routine using a barbed wire fence painted on calico as a prop. But the street theatre suddenly became the real thing when the women leapt over the main gate, dashed inside and squatted in a large circle 
for a Pine Gap version of the Boston Tea Party with Billy T and sandwiches while singing Tea for Two. Police got even more twitchy as tarpaulins, tents and banners sailed over the fence. As fast as the camping gear was confiscated and thrown out the gate, it was thrown back by the women on the outside. Using loud hailers, police ordered the women to leave, but about 60 headed off down the road towards the main buildings while small diversionary groups ran into the scrub and were chased by police cheered on by us. A police helicopter circled the main group and tried landing in front to block the women, but they kept walking until they were arrested. A few of us used bolt cutters to open a five-metre section of the outer perimeter and then ran like the wind through the opening. We had barely reached the guardhouse before a giant helicopter came so low it almost reached our bodies, forcing us to lie face down on the ground, covering our heads with our arms, not daring to move in case we were turned into mulch. The blades roared and whipped up swirls of red sand and splattered across us and the landscape, and I thought my day had come. 111 demonstrators were arrested that day and all but a handful gave the name Karen Silkwood to police before being driven to the Alice Springs lockup, where they were charged under the minor order trespass provisions of the Commonwealth Crimes Act. A crowd of us turned up at night to make sure they were OK and to find out they definitely were not. Many complained of outright brutality. Apart from strip searching, some were forcibly fingerprinted involving handcuffs and metal machines like thumb screws. Some police bent back their hands and held them by the throat, and a woman calling for a lawyer had papers shoved into her mouth. Dominican nun was choked during fingerprinting, while another detainee ended up in hospital with severe bruising and a suspected fractured spleen. I rang Gareth Evans in Melbourne and urged him to intervene, believing that a federal attorney-general surely must have some clout, even in the Northern Territory. Beyond my jurisdiction, he said. But at midnight, at least he spoke to a senior officers about the nature of the charges, bail arrangements, access to lawyers and number of women to a cell, because many of them were crammed in, as you can imagine. At a later press conference, Chief Superintendent Gilroy said allegations against police were false and malicious as they had used only reasonable force. It gave us fresh insights into the treatment meted out to Aborigines. Some women arrested on the Monday were fined $300, while others were fined $250 for the same charge. Next day, a few of us snaked our way around the back of Pine Gap and snipped off a substantial piece of its outer fence, pilfering some signs for good measure. I carefully wrapped them up and brought them home. At the end of November, I used a public meeting on uranium to launch the Pine Gap Women's Action Raffle and a few weeks later drew the lucky winners out of a bucket at the end of a Victorian state Labor conference causing frowns and raised eyebrows among the more conservative brethren. The prize? Naturally, bits of the fence. They represented the only piece of Pine Gap available to Australians, and believe it or not, I still have a couple of bits here because I hung on to them. And it's still got the dust of Alice Springs on them and a little bit of the red cotton. When two more giant radiums rose up at Pine Gap in 1999, no one took much notice until George W. Bush snuck into the White House and barely drew breath before resurrecting the repulsive National Missile Defence System. Its linchpin, Pine Gap. A missile scheme that went to the very heart of global power politics. I will conclude with a statement made by the women during that historic peace camp of which I was very proud to be a member. We are here to emphasise the links between the survival of the earth, 
the threat of imperialism to that survival, a recently elected government's complicity in that imperialism, their compromise on the mining and selling of uranium, and women's lack of representation on all these matters. What women have to offer is precisely that which is spurned and maimed by all war machines, children, caring and love. As the saying goes, the common woman is as common as a loaf of bread and will rise. And that's Joan Coxedge, political and social activist, talking about an action outside Pine Gap many years ago, the Women's Peace Camp, and it'd be interesting to see how the activists get on this time in their endeavour to get close to Pine Gap in Central Australia. You are listening to 3CR. This is 8.55am. It's digital radio. And if you'd like to do all the other things that you can do online, you need to go to 3cr.org.au and there's streaming, there's podcasting, there's all sorts of things to do to get your doses of 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan is back from reporting on the Pacific Islands Forum in the Federated States of Micronesia. Nick, we didn't hear much about it here in Australia. Yeah, the press coverage of the Pacific Islands Forum in Australia is pretty poor. Malcolm Turnbull arrived in Federated States of Micronesia, these islands in the central Pacific, north of the equator, having been to previous summits in uh, Beijing for the G20 and uh, Laos for the East Asia Summit. So the press pack that travelled with him were mainly people from the Parliamentary Press Gallery and they weren't particularly knowledgeable about Asia-Pacific affairs and the media, you know, management is pretty tight at these things. Turnbull gave two sort of five or ten minute doorstops, one of them in the the middle of the retreat on the Saturday of of that week. The leaders uh, of all the forum member countries went away for a private retreat where they can talk frankly to each other. And Turnbull came out at lunchtime Uh, gave a doorstop just to the Australian media, not to people from other countries who were there as journalists, then flew out straight after the the retreat. And the press pack naturally jumped on the plane with him and travelled even before the forum communique had been released. So the Australian government gave its spin of, of what happened at the forum without the journalists actually reading the communique, which said what the collective of uh, countries had had agreed on. And until now, the forum has been uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand and 14 independent island states. So the Australian public is really getting the version that comes from the Australian government rather than from the collective views of of the different countries. And it's fairly unusual to have that many Australian journalists there. Yeah, I was at the forum in Palau in 2014. Tony Abbott didn't even bother to go to that one. He sent Warren Truss, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, then leader of the Nationals Party, to go to the the forum in Palau. 
And not one news crew, not one journalist followed Truss to Palau. As people may know, I write for a magazine in Fiji, so although I'm an Australian journalist, a proud member of the MEAA, the Journalist Union, I was the only journalist uh, there from Australia who was covering the issues that come from the Pacific, the sort of perspectives put forward by the leaders of neighbouring countries. And on many issues, not surprisingly, climate change, on trade, on decolonisation, there are differences between what Australia and New Zealand are pushing and what our neighbouring island governments are pushing. Can I just ask you first why you believe Turnbull went? It's an important regional institution for Australia to maintain its strategic interests. But others haven't bothered? In recent years, people haven't bothered. Um, They feel that it's not powerful enough to do their will, and I think we're seeing a loss of Australian interest in the region. One of the things that happened during the Abbott Interregnum was that there was significant damage to the institutions that link Australia to the island's region. You know, AusAid, the Australian Development Agency, independent statutory body, was merged within our Department of Foreign Affairs. Under Julie Bishop, who's often lauded as a great foreign minister, we've seen the aid budget cut four years in a row. And when I say cut, in 2015-16, they lost a billion dollars. That's 20% of the aid program in one year to the Razor Gang. So Julie Bishop hasn't even protected her own turf as foreign minister in both the Abbott and the Turnbull governments. We've seen the gutting of a range of institutions that are important for Australian engagement with the region. Radio Australia you know, lost 80 staff with the, um, uh, the closing of the contract uh, under Tony Abbott for Australia Network TV. The volunteer programs, Australian volunteers, have had a 30% budget cut last year. A whole range of institutions like the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology and other agencies that work with their counterparts in the Pacific doing important work like, say, cyclone tracking, have had budget cuts and that's affected their capacity to collaborate with counterpart agencies in the Pacific. There's a sort of benign neglect and yet you read the Australian Defence White Paper released uh, earlier this year and the islands to the north and east of Australia are seen as a strategic buffer zone. They're second only to the potential invasion of Australia, the need to defend against someone invading Australia. The second priority for the Australian Defence Force, according to the Defence White Paper, is maintaining stability and security in the islands region to our north and our east. What we're seeing is significant shifts underway in these island countries, uh, relationships with new players uh, in the region like China, India, Korea, Indonesia, and Australian influence is, is changing and indeed in some say declining. And yet I think the Australian public is not aware about the significance of the shifts happening in our island's region. And that's where the forum is so important and where it's being uh, largely ignored by Australia uh, with the belief that a bit of aid money thrown here and there will, will serve our strategic interests. But, of course, the, the main issue for, or one of the main issues for the people in the Pacific is climate change. As we've talked about on this program, there are fundamental differences between Australia and New Zealand and our island neighbours on climate policy. For many years, as people negotiated what became the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the Pacific Islands worked through AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, which, as the name suggests, was 43 countries and territories from the Caribbean, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, small island and atoll nations really on the front line of uh, climate change and looking for action from OECD countries and from major powers like China and India. Australia is one of the largest coal-exporting nations in the world, a country which, particularly under Tony Abbott but continuing under the current government, has been notoriously opposed to urgent action 
on climate change. You know, Australia is so on the nose in the Pacific that climate, more than anything, has made it difficult for Pacific countries to simply just follow the Australia and New Zealand lead. So what we've seen is the growth of new networks, new organisations outside the Pacific Islands Forum, where island leaders can take action in their own national interest, forgetting about the needs of particularly vulnerable communities. So we have, for example, a new network called PSIDS, Pacific Small Island Developing States, PSIDS. And that's a caucus of ambassadors at the United Nations, of Pacific ambassadors who meet together, separate from Australia and New Zealand, who historically they always used to work with. And the PSIDS ambassadors are now advancing an agenda around issues like climate change, uh, protecting the oceans, uh, gaining more revenue from fisheries, a whole range of international issues where Australia and New Zealand are on the other side of the fight. And it's been very successful. The PSIDS joined with the Asia grouping within the UN, a fairly large and dynamic grouping, and it's paid off. So this year, for the first time ever for a Pacific Island country, Fiji has just won the presidency of the UN General Assembly. That's a position that rotates. And uh, the Asia-Pacific group nominated their candidate and won a majority of votes against the European bloc for that position. And, you know, Australia's in the Western European and others group. Um, the Pacific's joined the Asia-Pacific group. And the, the payoff is that Fiji Ambassador of the United Nations, Peter Thompson, is now President of the UN General Assembly. And that's not insignificant in UN terms, which allows them to drive uh, the agenda on issues like the oceans and uh, fisheries and climate change issues that are important for the Pacific. So next year, for, for the first time, Fiji and Sweden are co-sponsoring a, a, a global conference on the oceans. There'll be a United Nations conference on the oceans in June next year, and Pacific governments have been really campaigning for the recognition that the oceans are a vital part of their, their economy and their identity. Can you explain the Green Climate Fund and how that was discussed? One of the things Turnbull put on the table at the meeting in Ponape in Federated States of Micronesia was some funding for climate finance, what's dubbed climate finance. Part of the Paris Agreement, indeed one of the central pillars of the deal that brought together the Paris Agreement, was that wealthy industrialised countries should help fund the transition towards renewable energy in the developing world and should help pay for the costs of adaptation. That's the term used to describe adapting to the ravages of global warming, the impact of floods, the impact of sea level rise, ocean acidification, and all the long-term slow-onset effects of global warming that we now understand from uh, scientific research. Funding has come through a variety of mechanisms, direct bilateral support, Australia's given money to Tuvalu or Kiribati and so on. But this new Green Climate Fund is part of a global structure that aims to you know, really ramp up the funding and the target agreed or in 2010 but now ratified in the Paris Agreement is $100 billion a year of public and private funds will be used to uh, assist the transition in developing countries. So wealthy countries from the OECD and some larger countries like China and Mexico from the developing world are putting in money to the Green Climate Fund and that money is being allocated. Already two Pacific countries have got money out of the Green Climate Fund. Fiji got $31 million US dollars for a, a water program uh, looking at water and sanitation in squatter settlements in Suva. Tuvalu just got um, $38 million US dollars from the Green Climate Fund for work on coastal management, uh, which is really important for a low-lying atoll nation. Um, so it's a, an important mechanism. 
And Australia was helped help found the body. Uh, we used to be co-chair during the Labor period under under Gillard. Australia was co-chair, and Ewan Macdonald, who's a senior foreign affairs official, was sitting alongside South Africa. And so Australia played an important role in helping set up the body, its mandate, its structure, its working policies. Then Abbott pulled us out of the Green Climate Fund, said we wouldn't give any money to it, that it was environmentalism masquerading as socialism, quote-unquote. Julie Bishop has managed to claw back some support for the Green Climate Fund, but nowhere near enough. Australia's fair share of uh, climate funding would average about 2 or $3 billion a year. Frank Jotso, a researcher at ANU, says... $2.7 billion of public and private financing. Oxfam says about 3.4, so you can see the range, um, but really three, $3 billion a year. Now, even if two-thirds of that comes from the private sector, that means a billion dollars a year must come from the Australian government through uh, Australian taxpayers. And at the moment, we're averaging about $200 million a year. So we need a five-fold increase by 2020 four years away, and as we know, uh, Scott Morrison is not handing out money at the moment, so there's a real challenge, and Australia is seen as a laggard on this issue. You know, the Americans put $3 billion into the Green Climate Fund, the French a billion dollars, the Germans more than a billion, the British, even Mexico and other countries have stepped up, whereas we're giving the same money that we did in 2010 under the Gillard government. I helped co-author a paper on this called After Paris climate finance in the Pacific Islands, which people could Google, published by Oxfam uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, and that sets out the detail of the way in which Australia's really lagging when it comes to these issues. Are the strings attached to that fund? Well, very much so. And one of the problems is that there's a battle over the sort of conditions that are put forward. When Tony Abbott and Julie Bishop first uh, announced that they would consider putting funding into the Green Climate Fund, they set conditions of where the money would go. Uh, it's governed by an independent board, so Australia can't tell them what to do, but given we're co-chair, we have a significant influence. And one of the statements that the Abbott government announced, which has not been formally denounced by the, the current Turnbull government, was that our funding should go, and I quote, for private sector-led economic growth in the Indo-Pacific region, focusing on infrastructure, energy and forestry private sector-led economic growth in the Indo-Pacific region. And Australia believes, like Japan, that, for example, funding for clean coal technology should count towards our climate finance allocation as measured internationally. So if we're, say, building a clean coal, coal plant in India, that would be counted. Now, for people in the Pacific, for small island states that don't have a lot of energy uh, or transport sectors generating greenhouse gases, they're much more interested in adaptation funding in you know, uh, responding to the ravages of climate change. So when they see Australia saying, oh, yeah, we'll put a lot of money into infrastructure and energy in the Indo-Pacific region, that sounds an awful lot like clean coal technology to China and India, where the private sector can make a buck out of building major coal plants. It doesn't sound like the sort of funding that the Pacific needs for adaptation for livelihoods, for responding on fisheries and agriculture, you know, improving the conditions for vulnerable communities uh, that are on the coastlines of adult nations. The Australian government says it's going to do a lot in the Pacific, but uh, there's a real concern that the, the broad thrust of Australian funding is still towards uh, big money for Asia rather than prioritising the island states. Is the elephant in the room France? Well, that was made very clear at this year's forum, and one of the weaknesses of the coverage is 
the significant change the decision that was taken at the retreat in Pompeii, where for the first time New Caledonia and French Polynesia, two French dependencies in the Pacific, have been made full members of the forum. Now that's a momentous change and one that's passed largely unnoticed in Australia. As I say, the Australian press pack had left before the communique was announced. The forum was created in 1971, when there were only four independent island states, as a place where people could talk about political issues. The old body that existed at the time, the South Pacific Commission, which was created after the Second World War, had all the colonial powers in it. So Britain and France and the Dutch and the Americans were all members of the South Pacific Commission. And the French particularly didn't want people to talk about issues like nuclear testing or the issue of self-determination, the right to political independence and sovereignty. And so the forum was created in 1971 by leaders like the late uh, Ratu Sakamasesimara of Fiji, Hamada Robert of Nauru, uh, Cook Islands Prime Minister at the time. And they wanted a place where, as island leaders, they could talk amongst themselves about issues on trade, on climate, on economic development and so on, and on independence. The forum evolved over time. Australia and New Zealand joined as became the biggest donors to the forum. But until now, it's been a forum of independent island nations. And what we've seen coming out of this meeting, and people will look back as, as the beginning of a massive turning point, is that the French dependencies, two of the three French Pacific dependencies, are now full members of the regional body. They've been what's called associate members for a long time, but because they're not independent nations, because they're not sovereign nations, they weren't eligible to join the forum. And the shift of letting in the two French territories effectively also means letting in France and Australia and New Zealand for some time, Australia for a long time, Australia more recently, have been vocal about this change because they quite welcome the presence of France as a military power, as a strategic power in the South Pacific. They've given up effectively supporting the call for independence from independence movements in New Caledonia, French Polynesia, and have welcomed the France as an ongoing strategic presence in the South Pacific. Canucks aren't happy? Well, many Canucks aren't happy. Um, indeed, uh, I published a story uh, on uh, the PAC News, the Pacific Island News Association website, where um, one of the key Canuck leaders, Rock Womiton, who's uh, a former Speaker of the Congress, uh, the leader of the largest parliamentary group, pro-independence parliamentary group in the Congress, wrote on behalf of his parliamentary group calling for the decision to be deferred. Uh, New Caledonia is moving towards a referendum in 2018, just two years away, on its political status. And Wilmington and other leaders have called for the forum to delay handing this prize to the government of New Caledonia, which is dominated by uh, conservative anti-independence politicians at, at present. So France has had a significant strategic win. And, you know, France has its own strategic interests in the region. We talked before about oceans and fisheries with its um, far-flung dependencies in the Pacific. France has 7 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, 5 million of that in French Polynesia, a vast you know, ocean area, and with tuna fisheries, with the potential for seabed mining, deep seabed mining in the 21st century, that's an enormous strategic resource and one not thrown away lightly. This is 3CR and you're listening to Nick McClellan, researcher and journalist who's just back from the Pacific Islands Forum in the Federated States of Micronesia. France also active in PNG. Well, France is pretty active everywhere in the Pacific at the moment. And what, one of the reasons that many governments, uh, including those like Papua New Guinea that have long supported the independence movement in New Caledonia, 
They're also weighing up the potential benefits of France as an active player in the region. And because we've seen Australia's decline as a partner in many areas, the cutbacks in funding, for example, uh, the decision of the Abbott government not to support the Green Climate Fund, France has used that opportunity to advance its agenda. I was, as a journalist, once again the only Australian journalist, to follow François Hollande to New Caledonia in 2014. He came to Brisbane for the G20 meeting, but straight after the meeting he flew to New Caledonia and held a a roundtable at the um, Secretariat of the Pacific Community, the SPC, in Noumea, which is where its headquarters is. And they had a roundtable with island leaders talking about climate change, a high-level dialogue on climate change. And France announced, this was just before Paris, that they were going to put money on the table for the Green Climate Fund. And at the time, the Abbott government was saying, oh, we don't support it because it's socialism. And so France won a lot of brownie points through that. And we've seen France strategically wooing Pacific governments, particularly those that have been critical of France's colonial history and its nuclear testing. So this year, for example, Papua New Guinea Prime Minister Peter O'Neill, the largest island economy, travelled to France for the first ever state visit by a PNG Prime Minister. PNG has a major oil and gas industry, liquid natural gas. French companies were very interested in starting to invest in oil and gas. Uh, Total, which is a large French energy corporation, one of the biggest energy corporations in the world, is talking about a $10 billion investment, $10 billion US dollar investment in the uh, Gulf province of Papua New Guinea at uh, LNG. The, the boss of Total, uh, this French energy corporation, visited Papua New Guinea in April this year. So we're seeing areas where, although PNG has long been a supporter of the FLNKS, they're also looking at their global interests and their relationship with France. And throughout the region, you can give other examples of that. Uh, the French, for example, have just offered people from Vanuatu visa-free travel for three months into New Caledonia. So their neighbouring countries, uh, one, a former French colony, uh, now independent, Vanuatu, and New Caledonia, still a French dependency, and now people from Vanuatu have got visa-free travel to visit uh, New Caledonia. You know, France has been very active trying to build links with uh, the independent island countries, and indeed Australia, you know, under Kevin Rudd. France and Australia signed a joint declaration on strategic partnership and we've seen that uh, strategic partnership develop to the stage where the French shipbuilding corporation, uh, DCNS, is now going to build Australia's submarines, uh, the new fleet of submarines uh, um, to replace the Collins-class submarines. Uh, A $50 billion contract has gone to a French corporation. So once again, just as uh, PNG has oil interests uh, that weigh on its calculus about how much it supports independence movements in the Pacific, so Australia does. And I think it's pretty clear if Australia has to choose between its $50 billion submarine contract or support for the FLNKS in New Caledonia, I suspect the, the, the submarines will weigh pretty heavy on the balance sheet. Well, as you said, it's not only New Caledonia that's a full membership, it's the French Polynesia. What's that going to do to the, the issue of independence there? Well, it's a major problem. I interviewed Oscar Temeru, uh, the leader of Tavini Huiratira, which is the main independence party, uh, part of a coalition, the Union for Democracy coalition. Temeru was quite open, saying, don't do this. Um, this was a few months ago when I, when I interviewed him. He said, and I quote, that France will come into the forum and that French Polynesia will be a Trojan horse. Um, you bring French Polynesia in, you're bringing France in as well. And that's a major concern about this decision because legally and constitutionally, 
although many powers have been devolved from Paris to the local administrations in Numea and French Polynesia, Papeete, uh, France still controls key sovereign powers, control over defence, foreign policy, the currency, the courts, the police. Uh, so you think about a military issue. Um, uh, if French Polynesia, for example, was invited to participate in debates about regional security, they don't have any military forces. France, Paris, controls the military forces. So you'd have French authorities rather than French Polynesian authorities stepping into bodies like the Forum Regional Security Committee. It's going to raise real questions legally whether the French will play hardball and say, sorry, Papieti is not allowed to talk about that. Numia is not allowed to talk about that. You have to talk to us. So, for example, each year there's a thing called the South Pacific Defence Ministers' Meeting, a structure created by Australia since 2013 to bring together the defence forces of the region. Papua New Guinea, Tonga, Fiji all have armies. I think we're going to see France putting pressure on the South Pacific Defence Ministers' Meeting to become a member. Not French Polynesia and New Caledonia, but France. And Australia and New Zealand would be quite happy to have that, looking at France for its role in, you know, supposedly humanitarian operations, uh, cyclone responses, uh, maritime surveillance. The Australian Navy would welcome France to be involved. Indeed, they've been signing, uh, negotiating for some time, an agreement for shared operations between the French Navy and the Australian Navy, using each other's ports, uh, storing material, being able to share fuel and so on. So we're looking at the integration of France further into regional maritime affairs particularly, and um, aerial surveillance uh, through the Guardian aircraft based in Tahiti, based in New Caledonia. But surely, Nick, with the Pacific Islands Forum, isn't the rationale that they're independent states? Well, no more. This is a momentous change, and as I say, I think it's passed largely unnoticed in Australia that the forum is, is no longer a forum of independent countries. It's, it's now going to bring in. And already we see American Samoa, which is a US territory, saying, oh, well, we'd like to join too. The trap for the island governments is West Papua and Bougainville may also come knocking on the door, saying if the forum's no longer a forum of independent nations, if these are countries in transition towards a political status, the autonomous Bougainville government might legitimately say, hang on, we're elected, just like New Caledonia's government is elected. We're on a path towards a referendum on our political future, just like New Caledonia is. Why can't we be members? And for obvious reasons, the government in Papua New Guinea under Sir Peter O'Neill would be unenthusiastic about Bougainville having an independent voice. This is also going to reinforce Fiji's long-standing argument under the Bainimarama regime that the forum's been captured by Australia and New Zealand, that their strategic interests outweigh the interests of island states. Bainimarama once again didn't come to this year's forum. He boycotted last year's forum in Port Moresby, even though there's been elections in September 2014 in Fiji, a return to parliamentary rule, even though Australia and New Zealand have improved relations with Fiji, particularly because of say, response after the Cyclone Winston, uh, where, you know, Australian and New Zealand military were very active in Fiji, supporting post-cyclone disaster response. And yet Fiji still sees the forum as captured by the two larger powers and uh, has been pushing for islanders to develop islanders-only bodies. Uh, So we've seen the growth of the Pacific Islands Development Forum, a separate body, as a place to have discussions about economic and and green growth, how to use the oceans and protect fisheries and so on. I think we're going to see increasing focus and debate as to whether the forum has been captured 
by the major powers and therefore the islands need a separate institution to have their own discussions because often you can see that the forum communique which is issued at the end of each forum leaders meeting is a consensus document so it only takes one or two powers to block the consensus to neuter the forum coming out with strong policies and we saw that last year in, in uh, Port Moresby in the lead-up to the Paris negotiations that brought the new agreement on climate change. The Pacific Islands Development Forum held a meeting a week before the forum leaders' meeting, and PIDF communique was very strong, articulating the island demands around issues like climate finance, around 1.5 degrees as the target, the maximum target for growth of post-industrial greenhouse gases, action on loss and damage, a whole range of issues that the Pacific called for were articulated in the Suva Declaration that came out of PIDF. The forum couldn't agree on a strong position because Australia, not surprisingly, was opposed to 1.5. They know that if the global target is is not 2 degrees warming as the limit for, for dangerous climate change, but lower than that, that's going to mean more urgent action on addressing our coal and addressing our coal exports and our coal-fired power. And reality is intervening. The debate we're having about Hazelwood and protecting workers' rights in the Latrobe Valley as uh, the French Energy Corporation looks at the numbers. And France knows that coal's got to shut down, so the French Corporation, which runs the (laughs) privatised State Electricity Commission, uh, is saying, bugger Hazelwood, bugger the Latrobe Valley, let's walk away and leave someone else to clean up the coal mine there, which we'll know, the the fire that caused enormous damage for the working people in, in the Latrobe Valley. You know, the company that hasn't put a transition plan on the table yet for discussion about how do workers who are employed by Hazelwood make the transition either towards a a safe retirement or new employment in newly revitalised industries. And that's the sort of discussion we need to be having because everyone else in the world knows that our coal industry is in serious trouble and yet the government is still pushing Adani, opening up uh, coal mines in Queensland, even though island leaders have called for a moratorium on new coal. What were the feelings you come away with? It's always revitalising to be in the Pacific, to hear debates about how do we do this stuff? How do we protect the oceans at a time where we're seeing you know, ocean acidification, coral bleaching episodes? We've had the El Nino over the summer of 2015-16 causing enormous coral bleaching for island uh, reefs around the world. A Great Barrier Reef, obviously, but also right through the Pacific. And that has implications not just for tourism, because people don't want to come and see dead coral, but also for nutrition for people, women who go out on the reef to gather fish and reef fish and clams and pippies and so on off the, off the reef at low tide. That's a vital source of nutrition in the Pacific. So damage to the coral reef has many, many implications. And you go to a meeting like this and hear Pacific Islanders talk about how can we work both locally to adapt to these sort of challenges, but also globally to use the UN to push forward our agenda on the oceans? And Pacific Islanders have realised they've got to do it themselves. So as we move from what were called the Millennium Development Goals, these global targets on poverty set in 2000, last year the UN adopted new what are called SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, which are global targets for action. And for the first time, there's a goal about the oceans. And that's come from particularly the Pacific, but also Caribbean, Indian Ocean, island states, saying we're not just small dots, we're large ocean states with French Polynesia's got 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. New Caledonia's got 1.3 million square kilometres of ocean. 
They're creating World Heritage Zones to protect their reef. They're using UN mechanisms like World Heritage to say our reef is a vital source of economy, identity, culture, the future. So what do we do to protect that? Talk to the Australian government. They say, oh, well, you know, a bit of damage to the reef doesn't really matter and you know, a bit of runoff from Adani's coal dredging is OK. And, you know, the half-heartedness with which Australia's debate is about protecting such a vital resource... As soon as you step outside of Australia to go to meetings like this in the Pacific, you hear Pacific Islanders talking very sensibly about what are the issues before us. And And I'm afraid I'll have to leave Nick there. There wasn't too much more, but we might just run out of time because I've got one more interview to come. But thanks to Nick McClellan for his um, report back on the Pacific Islands Forum. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. The propaganda machine to demonise the Syrian government has reached a new pitch in the last week, particularly here in Australia with the ABC reporting on the conflict and the unquestioned support for the White Helmets. The reason could be that al-Qaeda is in big trouble in Aleppo, in danger of being kicked out altogether. I'm speaking now with Dr Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria. And Tim, looking at those reports that we are seeing on our media here, the White Helmets are prominent in most of it. Just remind us again who they are and who are funding them. Yeah, the White Helmets are a front group set up with uh, in the US with a British military person heading it, funded by the US government. They put $23 million in last year and the UK government and some others in Europe. And it's basically a support group for Al-Qaeda, uh, a medical support group, but it's also doing these false flag things about civilians being murdered every time there's an attack on the Al-Qaeda groups. So it's been quite effective, basically, And uh, but there's a heap of evidence that they're working directly with Al-Qaeda, that they, contrary to what they say, they are armed, they're getting money directly from the UK and the, and the US governments, and they're sectarian. They've been filmed and photographed at executions and at sectarian celebrations. And drawing at the heartstrings of people by showing these videos or films of them dragging little children out of rubble. Yeah, indeed. In fact, um, they're virtually all al-Qaeda types, like styling the Salafi beard with no moustache and so on. Uh, Posing with children has become... A cliche of this war, really, that they're like models, more or less posing. The number of pictures of al-Qaeda types with children is extraordinary. And they've been recycled, of course. They're recycled from year to year for different purposes, too. So the White Helmets have been important in trying to present the image of an independent group that is supposedly verifying these constant civilian atrocities carried out by the Syrian army. Can you talk about the destruction of the, the UN convoy a week or so ago. What is your take on it? The UN convoy that was burnt in a 
Aleppo came a few days after that terrible massacre of Syrian soldiers in Deir Ezzur. That massacre by US Air and including apparently Australian, British and some other collaborators, very rapidly they tried to say it was all an accident, forget about it, and raised this issue of these trucks being burnt and their drivers being killed in Aleppo. Initially what happened was it was a ruse to blame Russian and Syrian air attacks. But what happened was, because there was quite a lot of photographic evidence of these trucks and where they'd ended up, this is one of several convoys, by the way, there was no evidence of air attacks at all. There are craters in the road when there's air attacks, when there's bombing from the air. There's chassis damage to the trucks, and these ones were burnt. They were all burnt, and a number of the people in them were killed. So they were hijacked in al-Qaeda-held areas, basically, and we don't know exactly what happened, but the most likely thing is they were hijacked by the al-Qaeda groups, the civilian drivers were killed and they use it as a stunt to once again try and renew their pleas for the bombing of the al-Qaeda groups in eastern Aleppo to stop and also to distract attention, I suppose, from the, the massacre that the US had just um, carried out treacherously on the Syrian soldiers in Syria. This was the first time that the US had directly attacked and killed large numbers of Syrian soldiers. Could you give us a picture of Aleppo, the city itself, and... Who controls what and who's there? Yes, well, Aleppo, unlike Deir Ezzur, where the, the lines have, have been very clear for two years, you know, everyone has known where the Syrian soldiers are, how they're being uh, besieged by ISIS around Deir Ezzur. Unlike that, the situation in Aleppo has been changing a lot. But the broad picture is that the, the Syrian army over the last year has encircled and besieged a part of East Aleppo. It's actually quite a large part, but the population in there is down to below 200,000 now, of which many thousands are jihadists. The larger part of Aleppo in the west and growing part of Aleppo is more than 1.5 million now. So the Western media talks about Aleppo as this al-Qaeda-held enclave, fairly large in size but relatively small in in relative population in al-Qaeda. And that now is being encroached on progressively, like just in the last week, for example, a number of very large suburbs have been taken over by the Syrian army so it's a it's a tactic the Syrian army's used in a lot of other places they'll encircle them they'll try and get the civilians out they'll drop in surrender pamphlets and so on in the case of East Aleppo they've created humanitarian corridors with the Russians to try and get civilians out but also to take surrenders from the armed groups and that's what's happening at the moment there there's at least well the Russian the most recent Russian estimate was that there's three and a half thousand jihadists in there mainly from the uh, old Jabhat al-Nusra has changed its name a few times and collaborators and still we don't know how many but certainly many tens of thousands of civilians still in there and so that's what's at stake at the moment in terms of retaking all of Aleppo back from the jihadists the Syrian army and their allies from Iran, from Hezbollah, from Russia and so on have got a very tight grip over that, that part of Aleppo now There are stories coming out that many, many people hundreds of thousands have been kept away from food and water and everything for months, even years. How have these people survived if that's been the case? Well, that's true. I mean, there's, there, there are these exaggerated stories constantly of every besieged area, but a, a siege really is the best military solution to try and force people to surrender, to show that they've got no options, to give them time. The Syrian army hasn't followed the scorched earth policy in the way that the Europeans did in the past, in the way that the US does in Iraq. You recall the attacks on Fallujah 12 years ago, that, that scorched earth policy where they say everyone get out and they just raise it to the ground almost. In those besieged areas, some of them have been besieged for quite long times, like in eastern Damascus and now eastern Aleppo, 
the idea is to gradually give people a chance to come out before there's a final assault there. And, of course, if there's some final assault, a final, final bombing, there's going to be a lot of casualties of civilians who, in many cases, are going to be the families of those al-Qaeda groups that are not going to leave. But we have seen a lot of surrenders and a lot of, uh, and a steady trickle, let's say, not a huge exodus because it's very difficult. Those groups are using civilians as human shields in East Aleppo now. And any type of bombing on the, on the al-Qaeda groups is presented as an attack on civilians in the Western, Western media. I think we can't really expect anything else from the Western media during this wartime situation. And so long as the Western governments are using the al-Qaeda groups as their proxy armies, there's not really... I, I can't really see there's going to be any change in the Western reporting of this. Every attack on the al-Qaeda groups is going to be presented as some sort of... Um, humanitarian tragedy but really the humanitarian tragedy is those groups staying in Aleppo and bombing the majority population in Aleppo with their handmade uh, mortars and hell cannons. Russia's coming in for a lot of criticism. Well that's just simply you know a character of the, of the conflict isn't it that the the US does not want the al-Qaeda groups to lose Aleppo that's their key foothold still in Syria there's still the the card in the Kurdish area, there's seven U.S. military bases, small military bases being created on the northern border, but the key card that the U.S. has to have any influence in Syria now is the control by the al-Qaeda-led groups in that part of eastern Aleppo. And Turkey? And Turkey also, because Turkey, of course, has been the main springboard for the, the transit there. Now the Syrian army has uh, cut off the supply lines to Turkey. Of course, the point you made before about people starving there is if they get weapons in, they can get food in, basically. If they're getting those rockets and uh, uh, actually the high-technology uh, weapons also, the anti-tank weapons and so on that they have, then, of course, they can get supplies in too. Bunker, busting bombs, chemical weapons, it's all coming out now, isn't it? The, the accusations. The use, of, the use of chemical weapons has always been turkey-linked. Um, indeed, the first uh, reports of chemical weapons by the jihadist groups were in late 2012, early 2013. There's been quite a number of them. There were arrests in Turkey and so on. The recent one is that there's, they've got intelligence of a planned use of phosphorus in, in Aleppo by the group called Arar Sham, which is the old Free Syrian Army group linked to al-Qaeda, linked to Jabhat al-Nusra or Jaish Fateh al-Sham, as they call themselves now. They're seeing some of these sorts of things in advance because it's a last-ditch attempt to try and uh, really get the, the Syrian and the Russian bombing to stop uh, by claiming um, civilian atrocities. But those chemical weapons are being blamed on the Syrians and the Russians? Always, always. Yes. Yeah. What do you see happening in the next few days, weeks? Last weekend, the Syrian forces took control of about four major areas of Aleppo, so there's a very rapid, even though it's, it's a large battle and there are reinforcements, remember, that the jihadists have from the western side, still they've got a strong presence in Idlib, there's a lot of fighting going on in Hama, but mainly they still have strong bases on Idlib, which fronts onto the, the Turkish border, and the Syrian forces haven't cut off those supply routes into Idlib yet, so there's many thousands of Jabhat al-Nusra in Idlib trying to reinforce. They, they made a big offensive to try and break the siege on East Aleppo a couple of weeks back and failed. And now the, the take back of those areas in Aleppo is proceeding pretty rapidly. I expect we will hear in a fairly short time that that area in Aleppo, is, which the jihadists hold, is decreasing. 
there will be increased surrenders. Uh, there's already splits within those groups and recriminations over how they're losing areas. For example, they lost Hundarat camp, which was a Palestinian camp in north Aleppo, and on the weekend they also lost parts in south Aleppo, an important industrial zone and some military sites uh, and some factories and so on. You know, those sort of sites are the ones that are used to to hold out and define territory in the city. Of course, the city's horrendously damaged, but um, as the Syrians say, the point is not the buildings, the point is the people. The refugees within and without Syria? Well, the major part of displaced people from the war is um, not refugees, it's internally displaced people. And they, actually, many of them have gone back, for example, into Hama, into southern Aleppo. Uh, in Ever since the, the Russian... Um, air power came into the conflict, which is a year ago now, almost a year ago, there's been returns to people to their homes. So we can see that when there's stability in an area, when the Syrian forces um, take back areas from these head choppers, uh, not surprisingly, people go back. I'm talking tens of thousands of people. So there's already been a lot of returns. And as Hama and Idlib are reclaimed and southern, southern Aleppo countryside are reclaimed, in Aleppo, remember, you've got ISIS on the east side and you've got the, the other Al-Qaeda groups on the west side. So there's really a two-sided war going on there. There's, they're still fighting in other parts of Syria in the south and in parts of eastern Homs and over towards Derizur and so on. But really the, the, the major focus at the moment is the, the liberation of Aleppo and I think we're going to see some signs of that very, very soon. When people are listening to the ABC or the BBC or CNN with reports on what's happening in Syria, what should people be looking for in those reports? And the sources of information. The sources are always jihadist sources, not because those media like that sort of jihadism mentality, but because it suits the war narrative. I don't, I've really given up hope that the narratives of the ABC and the other sources are going to change very much. They do show contradictions from time to time, but if you look at, if you want to listen to those reports, I would say spend more time listening to the reports from Iran, Russia and Syrian media because you're only going to get a one-sided report from the Western media. They've shown themselves incapable of really you know, seriously questioning the war narrative despite the evidence. There's a mountain, mountain of evidence after more than five years of war. But if you want to listen to those reports, look for the sources of the information. It's always coming from the jihadist link sources like the, the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights in England, financed by British intelligence. Groups like the White Helmets, groups like the Syria Campaign, a lot of Human Rights Watch, which is a semi-official US NGO, those same sources are the ones that have been driving this uh, humanitarian war narrative from the beginning. And how many independent journalists are there in that area? No, you can't really talk with independent journalists, really, because the ones that are with the Al-Qaeda groups are embedded with the Al-Qaeda groups, and the ones that are with the Syrian army are embedded with the Syrian army. There are some independent sources, but really... The problem is that you, you look at the Western media, you won't see them really reporting the Syrian, the Russian, the Iranian, the Iraqi side of things. If you looked at the Iraqi, the Iranian, the Syrian, the Lebanese resistance, the Russian sources, you'll, you're able to get now, if you want to look at those sources, uh, another side to the war. And it's important that people do that. I think they can look at RT, they can look at Sputnik, they can look at Press TV, they can look at Fast News Agency, they will get, a they will get the other side to the story there. Certainly be a bit, lot better than what we're getting on the ABC and different pro programs lately regarding Syria. That's about it for me. I'll be back next week. But before we go, let's have another couple of, of community announcements and then at six o'clock we'll have Done By Law.
On Sunday, the 9th of October, 3CR opens its doors to the community and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll be an awesome afternoon tea, roving musicians, special on-air broadcasts, and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic. There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours, and the chance to purchase, for the first time, 3CR 40th birthday T-shirt. Come in and enjoy your community radio station. 3CR Open Day, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Sunday the 9th of October, 12 to 4pm. See you all there. It's not too late to book and attend the National Peace and Anti-War Gathering at Alice Springs from the 30th of September to the 2nd of October and take part in the closed Pine Gap protests. At the conference, there'll be local and international speakers, including panel discussions. You can check out all the details, including bookings, at ipan.org.au. If you can't attend the gathering and protests at Alice Springs, you can show your support by signing the online Close Pine Gap petition at bit.do forward slash close pine gap and listen to 3CR for reports on the conference and pine gap protest activities. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Do you have a community event or campaign you'd like to announce on radio? Maybe your group would like to take a tour of 3CR and find out how community radio works. Are you in a band and would like to record a demo? Or maybe there are people in your workplace or activist organisation who would like to undergo media skills training. 3CR is a resource for the community and offers community announcements, station tours, studio hire and media skills workshops at affordable prices. For more information, contact 3CR on 9419 Or go to our website, www.3cr.org.au. As I said, it's all for me for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4, right through to 6 o'clock. Coming up, done by law, and go out with a little bit of Rumpy Band. Bye for now.